Sunday. I don't really want to be here. Okay, so we're going to try that again. How are you all doing this morning? There we go. Because believe it or believe it not, if you don't answer, I'm just going to keep on asking you and talking. And like some, some of you don't believe me, but I'll do it. I'll do it. So we're in our sermon series on the doctrines, and uh, this week we're actually in the fourth uh, uh, sermon in the series, but we're on the third doctrine, and so today we're going to be discussing the doctrine of the Trinity. And so this doctrine, uh, kind of fun for me, maybe not so much for you. Uh, Again, this is one of those uh, doctrines that is highly sort of... uh, uh, theological and and theoretical and like it it takes a lot of research and a lot of fun Uh, so our doctrine here is we believe that there are three persons in the Godhead the Father the Son and Holy Ghost undivided in essence and co-equal in power and glory and we're going to start this morning's uh, sermon off with this particular quote Uh, from St. Augustine. I'm not sure if you've read up on St. Augustine. I like him. I think he's a cool guy. Uh, He was a bishop in Hippo, uh, which is a place, not an animal, so don't get confused. But the bishop of Hippo said this, if you deny the Trinity, you will lose your soul, and if you try to understand the Trinity, you will lose your mind. Because the Trinity is one of the most complicated articulations of the Christian faith. In fact, it's often referred to as the supreme mystery of the Christian faith. Uh, the Trinity is difficult. Uh, and, and, and here's one of the reasons why. Our God is perfect, amen? So he's perfect in the way that he expresses himself. However, you and I are not perfect, amen? Which means that when we try and use our imperfection to describe a perfect God, there are always going to be slight flaws in the way that we do that. Now, I believe uh, in articulating and communicating the truths of Scripture in the best way possible. However, there are some times when that communication actually does contain just a little bit of heresy. And what you have to do when you're communicating the gospel to anyone is make sure that the value of what you're doing and saying is more important than maybe just a tiny, like, eh, little imperfection in the way that you explain it. So, for example, uh, have you ever heard the, the Trinity being explained as in, in water, that there, you know, that there is uh, ice, there is steam, and there is water, there, it's all water, it's all the same sort of substance, but it's in three different different things, and, and that's some people use that to communicate the Trinity, and that's fantastic for communicating the Trinity to little kids, because finally kids, I did, I used the example myself uh, at a camp, a teen camp in the Northwest Division, uh, I used that, I threw dried ice into a swimming pool, and it released a whole bunch of steam, and it was really cool. The problem with that is um, they're not three parts at the exact same time, so that actually teaches a, a heresy called modalism which means that the, the, the God has three different modes that he exists at three separate times rather than existing in the same format altogether. Right? So do you understand what I say when sometimes you have to allow just a little bit of heresy in depending on the audience? So if you all were in seminary and I was giving a lecture on the Trinity, I wouldn't use that as an example because... that. Y- it's just a, it's sort of an incorrect example. But if you were a bunch of teenagers at a teen camp, I would absolutely use that as an example. 
Does that make sense? So, so I just want to uh, uh, just preface this particular sermon. So when I say that these sermons, this topic can get com- complicated, when it can get highly theoretical, when it, it's difficult to communicate the perfection of the supreme mystery of the Christian faith using imperfect language. Does that make sense? Okay. Does that make sense? There we go. All right. Because if it didn't make sense, I would keep going because, you know, there's the egg example. That's also wrong. I could explain how that one's wrong. Do you want me to? No? All right. Come on. Communication, feedback. I live for it. Here's, here's what's really interesting. The word Trinity does not show up in Scripture itself. For the last three weeks, I've been hammering home to you that if it's not in Scripture, we don't teach it, Right? That, that, that we believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testament were given by inspiration of God and that they only constitute the divine rule of Christian faith and practice. And here I am teaching you a doctrine when the word Trinity does not show up in scripture itself. But that's okay because the word Trinity doesn't actually show up in our doctrine. Our doctrine says we believe that there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, undivided in essence and co-equal in power and glory. We don't use the word Trinity in our doctrine because it's not found in Scripture. And so where I'm trying to articulate to you that the Scripture is the foundation for everything we do and preach, even though the word Trinity is a common word in the Christian faith, we don't put it in our doctrine simply because it's not actually found in Scripture. Isn't that interesting? Some of you are not as interested in that as I am. I'm super interested in that because I think that's, that's just interesting. So if Trinity is not found in uh, the Bible, the word, uh, you need to know where it came from. So it was coined by a church theologian and church father named Tertullian. Uh, Really cool guy, really smart guy in about 155 to 220 AD is when he lived. So it was sometime in that particular era where he uh, uh, first used the word Trinity and it gained popular steam in the Christian faith. Uh, And so... The, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which uh, I quoted in the very first week, I'm not sure if you remember uh, that sermon from, from those weeks ago, uh, I actually quoted one of, the, uh, one of these uh, catechisms, but it says this, In the unity of the Godhead there, are th- there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. It is important to note that, in, that all three Persons in the Godhead share the same attributes, and so so this is this is really interesting. In Scripture, both God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are described as being creators, being eternal, being omnipotent, which means all powerful, omniscient, which means all knowing, omnipresent, which means being everywhere at the same time, and immutable, meaning being unchanging. And so only God is described as these particular characteristics. And what's important about that is that we share a lot of God's characteristics. So the Scripture says that God is love, and you and I have the ability to love. Uh, scripture says that God is a God of, of justice, and you and I innately are people of justice. We understand when injustice is occurring, yes? Um, let me, let me phrase it to you like this. If someone broke into your house and took all of your possessions and then that person was caught, you would want them to go uh, before a judge and get punished for their actions, yes? Yeah, I don't think there is anyone in this room that would be like, no, nah, I think it would be okay. I think we would just let that go. Someone walks up to you and punches, them, punches you in the face. You want that person to 
have justice put upon them. You might not necessarily want them to be punished, but you want there to be consequences for their actions. Amen? We're a, God, we're a people of justice because we share the attribute of God, that God is a God of justice. And so throughout Scripture, there are a bunch of characteristics and attributes that God shares with his creation. These are not them. These are the unshared attributes of God. Because I, I, I don't know how hard you can try, but can you create something out of nothing? No. Are you eternal in and of yourself? I understand your soul and spirit might be eternal, but look, I turned 35 a couple of months ago, and I'm telling you, my neck, my back, it is not going to last forever. Some of you are a little bit closer to that forever than I am. All right, was there anything incorrect or untrue about that statement? No. That's you dealing with your own stuff if you giggled at that. As much as, as I, try and, uh, I try my hardest, I'm not an omnipotent. I'm not all-powerful. Wouldn't it be nice, though, if you could just control everything? Oh, it'd be so nice. And despite what I try and tell my wife, I am not omniscient. I don't know everything. So when she walks into the, the bedroom at, at whatever time this morning, goes, have you seen the laundry basket? Like, no, I've been asleep for the last 12 hours. You put it somewhere. I didn't move it. You moved it. You know where she found it? In the kitchen, where she put it. Am I wrong? So I'm not omniscient. I don't know everything. I'm, I'm not omnipresent. And I'm definitely not unchangeable. Changing from one season to the next. Wouldn't life be boring if we were unchanging? For us, not for God. God is, it's a miracle that he is. And it is fantastic for us that in a world that is changing from day to day, hour to hour, minute to minute, second to second, that God is this incredible constant that never changes. Now, even when you look up into the heavens and you see the stars, we're told now by scientists that half of the stars that you look at are dead. And it just takes the, the light that time to reach us and they're no more and they're completely gone. So even the heavens when you look up are unchangeable, but our God is not and that's helpful. And so these attributes are never found in anything other than God. So because each of the members of the Godhead shows these attributes individually, it shows that they are all in their own right God. And so the, the Father is described as being creative and, and never changing. And the Son is, is shown in, uh, in the book of Colossians that everything was created by him, for him, and through him. And that the, uh, in, in Genesis we read that the Holy Spirit was there at the moment of creation. And so because each one of those are described individually as being God, we know that all three are God. And so uh, we, we also uh, see them mentioned in same passages. So here we got Matthew 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now there's some interesting grammatical things happening here. Baptizing them in the name, singular. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. A singular name, but three parts. In Second Corinthians thirteen fourteen, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The first 
Christians understood that there were three persons in the Godhead. And perhaps, interestingly enough, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. There you have Father, Son, and Spirit. The, Father, the Son is in the water, and the Spirit of God descends from heaven, and then you hear the voice of the Father. And so while the word Trinity is not found in Scripture, the concept of three gods, one person, is found peppered throughout the entire places. And even in this particular verse that we normally would read around Christmas time, the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child will be born and be called Holy, the Son of God. It's a Trinitarian verse. The Son of God is called Holy but the power of the Most High and the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Three parts, Father, Son, Spirit, one being. So let's look at them just a little closer. The Father. Okay, there is little to no debate that the Bible presents the Father as definitively God. When you're going through the the heresies of the church and the things that people have, have tried to come up with over the last couple of thousand years, there is little to no debate whether the uh, whether or not the Bible presents the Father as definitively God. He is uh, presented throughout both the Old Testament and New Testament as creator, eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, and immutable among his other characteristics. Uh, the, the, the only problem with the Father being God is that sometimes we go in the opposite direction. Oh, sometimes typos. That should not say whither. It should say weather. Whatever. Uh, sometimes what we will do is we sort of take this understanding that the Father is up here, but then the Son and the Spirit are underneath. Um, it's a hierarchical view because you and I live in a society that is based on hierarchy. Uh, if you don't believe that, look at the Salvation Army. I have a boss. Her name is Colonel Kelly. She has a boss. His name is Commissioner Hodder. He has a boss. It's the general. We live in a world that is structured by hierarchy, even not in the Salvation Army. When you go to work, you have a boss, and that boss has a boss, and that boss has a manager, and that manager has a general manager, and that general manager has a regional manager, and then that person and that person has a CEO, and you get the idea. And so, so because you and I come from a world that is based around hierarchy, what we can do when we look at the Father, Son, and Spirit is we can put them into a hierarchy in our minds and think, well, the Father is the one in charge because he sent the Son, uh, and so he clearly is the one in charge, rather than them living in this community of equality and creativity together. And so we just have to be real careful that when we look at the Father that we don't see him as being above in our minds as the other two. Leads us to the Son. I know we're, we're moving through these really fast. <sighs> Some people throughout history have suggested that there are passages in the gospel that contradict Jesus being an equal part of the Trinity. For example, some argued that Jesus himself denied being omniscient, meaning knowing everything. Uh, In this verse here, Mark 13.32 says this, But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. How can Jesus be omniscient and yet not have certain aspects of knowledge? 
Now, that's really interesting. Right up until you start studying the Greek and you realize that the word to know actually means in this passage to reveal. And so here's, here's part of the problem with our scripture. You're reading the Bible in English. I'm assuming you could be Spanish and reading it in Spanish. You're reading it in a translation that someone along the way translated out of the original Greek into whatever language you're reading it in now. There are some Bibles, I'm not going to call them out by name, there are some Bibles that went from the original Greek into Latin, into German, then into English. When you translate a book that many times, little nuances tend to get left behind. And so the word here in this particular scripture, uh, to know, is a good translation, but it sometimes loses the meaning behind it, which is to reveal. So when you read it in that context, it says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one can reveal, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. It's only up to the Father to reveal. One of the arguments, again, it came from uh, Augustine of Hippo. He said this uh, when talking about Deuteronomy 13.3, the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart. And here again in the Hebrew, it meant to reveal. The Lord your God is testing you to reveal whether you love the Lord your God or not. So there's precedent for this particular translation. And so when we look at Mark 13.32, it what it should be saying, what it could be saying, is that only the Father is going to reveal this particular knowledge at a particular time and a particular date. It's not there for the Son to do it while he is in this time on earth. Does that make sense? Okay, once more with feeling. Does that make sense? Yes. I love it. Look, I'm only going to keep... I'm, I need you to understand this. I told you it was going to be like a brainiac kind of morning. I warned you at the top of the sermon, did I not? Yes. So some of you have already fallen asleep, but that's okay. We'll keep moving. The scripture that was, oh, this isn't one that was read, but this is John 21, 17. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Peter here declares that Jesus knows some things, a couple of things. Jesus for certain knows where my wife put the laundry basket this morning. She's looking at me right now, isn't she? I'm not turning around yet. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. So scripture declares that Jesus knows everything. I'm getting into so much trouble after this. I'm in trouble now. In 325, the first council of Nicaea established the doctrine of the Trinity as orthodoxy. Uh, Don't get scared when you ever see the word orthodox. Orthodox simply means accepted teachings. That's all, all it means. Orthodoxy just means this is the set of teachings that is accepted as standard throughout the Christian faith. So when you see something with the word orthodox in it, it's not a bad thing. It doesn't mean you're an old guy with, you know, I've got to do it this way. That's not what orthodox means, all right? It just simply means accepted teachings. And so the doctrine of the Trinity was accepted as uh, accepted teachings and adopted the Nicene Creed, which describes Christ as being God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. 
And so the church uh, officially adopted this particular standpoint in 325, saying, no, Jesus isn't subservient to the Father. Jesus isn't uh, the servant of him, even though Jesus himself was uh, and took on servant attributes while he was here on earth. He is not subservient to the Father. And it brings us to our third member of the Trinity, the Spirit. And just as there have been arguments about the role of the Son in the Trinity, there have also been arguments over the Holy Spirit. I'm giving you church history this morning. Some of you are like, man, but others of you are like, yeah. Look, I like history. I think it's fantastic. And you know what they say about history? If you don't learn from it, you're doomed to repeat it. And that is equally true in the church. When the church has not learned the lessons of the past, things have crept into our belief systems that do not deserve or belong there. And so we need to be real careful when we're, when we're learning these things about, about, uh, about Jesus and God and the Spirit that, that we're thinking correctly. And so there have been arguments over the, over the Trinity. However, I, uh, I found this guy. This guy's name was Basil the Great. Isn't that a fantastic name? My name's Basil the Great. I, I, growing up, uh, my father made me listen to some English comedians, and one of them was a puppet named Basil Brush, uh, and he was a fox. And so when I think of Basil the Great, I think of a little fox running around in a, with a British accent saying uh, uh, things and things like this. Uh, Basil the Great argued from this particular passage in Acts chapter 5, verse 3 and 4. Uh, some of you might know this story, some of you not. There was a, a guy called Ananias, and he had a wife, Sapphira. Do you know these people? Really interesting people. They were well-off people. They had a lot of land, money, property. And they decided that in order to, to get in good with the church, in order to, to make people know who they were, they were going to sell off a piece of land and donate the money to the church. They were going to try and buy their way into the church. And so when they sold the land, uh, what they did is they didn't give the entirety of the money. They actually put a portion of it aside and then went to the church and said, Here, have this money. It's everything that we got. And so Peter, and you've got to remember, this is, this is post-resurrection Peter. This is post-Pentecostal Peter. This is like Peter who, 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 who's going to light some people on fire, that type of Peter who's not taking any, any ridiculousness. Uh, this Peter uh, says to, to Ananias, uh, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Don't you wish sometimes in life you could look someone directly in the eye and say to them, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Isn't that just like a response? Isn't that, this is Peter who's not taking any, any stuff anymore. He's, he's going for it. And keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, why did, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have lied not to man, but to God. There he says that you have lied to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit uh, is God. And so Peter right here is, is essentially announcing, and this is what Basil the Great argued, he's announcing that Peter here, as early as the book of Acts, is saying that the Holy Spirit is equal to God. He's using God, the word God and the word Holy Spirit interchangeably. If you lie to the Holy Spirit, you have lied to God. In case you're wondering, um, Ananias drops down dead. It says that the Holy Spirit struck him down dead for lying to the Holy Spirit. 
it seems a little bit little little bit of a overreaction from my human perspective i don't know what the god perspective is and in case you're wondering his wife sapphira wasn't here at the time and so she waltzed in after this particular happy his his body had been carted away sapphira uh, sapphira wanders in and Peter asks her the same question, is this all the money? And, and she lies again. And so you know what happens to her? Yeah, she does too. Equality, it's right there. Just saying. Psalms 33, 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by his breath of his mouth all their host. That word, their breath, is the same word as spirit in the Hebrew. It's the Hebrew word ruach, revealing that the Son and the Holy Spirit are co-creators. And what we discussed earlier is one of the unshareable attributes of God is total creation. And so in order for the Son and the Holy Spirit to be co-creators, they need to be in their same essence, God. It leads us to this final point, that the Father, Son, and Spirit are undivided and co-equal. And I found this quote, which I want to end our time together on. The Old Testament proclaimed the Father openly and the Son more obscurely. The New manifested the Son and suggested the deity of the Spirit. And now the Spirit himself dwells among us and supplies us with a clearer demonstration of himself. When you look at Scripture, it was revealed in a certain order, in a certain way. The Father was clearly revealed in the Old Testament. The Son, it was a little bit more obscure. There are some things uh, that people will will quote and they'll say, for instance, I've heard people say, um, uh, when talking about the the fiery furnace and and that particular lesson from the Old Testament, they'll say that, uh, that Jesus was in the fire Uh, except that Scripture doesn't make it clear whether it is Jesus himself incarnate or if it was a manifestation in spirit or if it was, in fact, an angel. And and different people teach different things on that. I'm not here to lie to you to say that my opinion is the right one and I'm the only one who's entitled to it, so listen to me and no one else. I'm not like that. When there is difference of opinions on Scriptures, I'm going to give you them and then tell you why I land on a particular one. I land on it not being a physical manifestation of the Son because there is nothing in Scripture to indicate that he did it anywhere else. So it doesn't make sense that he would do it just once. But he's suggested, the Son is suggested more obscurely in the Old Testament. Uh, Some people have also argued that when Abraham was in the wilderness and God decided to show up, as God does, and that he had two other people with him, that that was a manifestation of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Except again, there's nothing in Scripture to indicate that that was in the person, Jesus Christ, and in the person, the Holy Spirit. And so I think the reason that I I bring these points up, it's incredibly important, especially when you're dealing with a topic as complicated as the Trinity, not to put your own interpretation on Scripture when there's no scriptural basis for it. We believe that the scriptures of the Old and New Testament were given by inspiration of God and that they only constitute the divine rule of Christian faith and practice, which means we need to go on scripture, not necessarily our interpretation of scripture. Does that make sense? Uh, 
So what I'm saying is you need to be real cautious. There are going to be some real uh, on-fire preachers who know a lot of stuff, can throw Hebrew at you, can throw Greek at you, can throw uh, history, uh, all this stuff at you, and, and they can speak with incredible confidence, but it doesn't mean that they're necessarily right. And what I believe is that any Christian can understand Scripture if they rely on the wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit. Doesn't mean that you ignore the teachings of the church. That is supplemental. But Holy Spirit first, Revelation first, Christian fellowship second. People who have radio shows and get paid a lot of money and have large mansions in, in you know, Texas, maybe take those with a grain of salt. He concluded by saying this, it was not safe when the Godhead of the Father was not yet acknowledged plainly to proclaim the Son, nor when that of the Son was not yet received to burden us further. And so what he was saying is this, God the Father was plainly revealed in the Old Testament because people weren't yet ready for the Son and Spirit. They weren't ready for that level yet. Because even when the Son came, he was not received. Jesus himself said he was not going to be received while he was here on earth. There were precious few of the people. Let me put it this way. Uh, Jesus fed uh, 5,000 men in one particular sitting, and that doesn't include the women and children. Do you remember that story from the Gospels? They, they saw him miraculously turn a couple of pieces of bread and a couple of fishes into enough food to feed the entire people. So it goes to, goes to say that he, he must have gotten at least, you know, 500, 1,000 disciples out of that one go, right? Jesus didn't have anywhere near that many disciples. So while he was here on earth, people did not receive him. And it wasn't until after he left that the Holy Spirit was given. The Old Testament proclaimed the Father openly and the Son more obscurely. The New manifested the Son and suggested the deity of the Spirit. Now the Spirit himself dwells among us and supplies us with a clearer demonstration of himself. For it was not safe when the Godhead of the Father was not yet acknowledged plainly to proclaim the Son, nor when that of the Son was not yet received to burden us further. The Trinity is the most complicated of the scriptural doctrines the church has. And congratulations, you all sat through it and none of you snored, which is impressive. Now, I may have made my wife angry at me, but it was worth it because some of you laughed, which means you were paying attention. And in case you're ever wondering, it's the reason why I put jokes in my sermon. Because you laugh at the joke and then you listen to the next point. So the next point is usually a good one. And so I want to end our time together just with this. We're going to pray. And what I would like is if each one of us could pray for the Holy Spirit to reveal his nature and character to us. Perhaps in a way that hasn't yet been revealed. It's great for a person like me to do all this research and to spend hours combing through church fathers to, to present this to you, but without the Holy Spirit, this is an intellectual exercise. And that's fun for me. I like an inter, a good intellectual exercise. I love a good theological argument, uh, not a, an argument in a, in a bad way like, you know, rah, 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 
like, you know, what's going to happen after the service when my wife comes and says, hey, why did you mention this clothing basket in the sermon? We're going to have an argument. Not that type of argument. But you know the good type of theological argument where Scripture says iron sharpens iron? Have you ever done that? The iron has to hit the sword really hard to, to, to get it sharp. And so when we argue in love and in understanding, not necessarily arguing to be right, but un, uh, arguing to understand and to learn, it's incredibly important. So I would ask that you ask the Holy Spirit to open your hearts and your mind to the mystery of the Trinity, to understand it. That if you have questions about it, that you, you seek out another Christian brother or sister in this congregation. It can be me with the... the, the you know, the red on the shoulders, but it can be someone else. There are people in this church that have been Christians longer than I've been alive. I'm going to guess that they know a thing or two. Seek people out. Talk. Don't argue to win. Argue to understand and to grow. And by, please, 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 when you do, do so through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because without him, you will not understand the Trinity. Without him, you will fall into heresies. You will fall into bad, bad teachings. So let's pray together. And as I pray, I'm going to invite uh, Bart up because he told me that he could play the benediction. Yeah. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the time you've given us to come into your house and to worship you. I pray, Lord God, that this mystery of the Trinity is not something that we take lightly, but rather something that you can reveal to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray, Lord, that when there is things that we need to know and understand, that your Holy Spirit reveals them and that we can gain information through discourse with other Christians and that we can do so with love. Lord, we love you and we we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.